Welcome to New Books in the Indian Ocean World, a podcast series on the New Books Network. This podcast is for people who want to sail the waters of the expansive Indian Ocean and learn about its past and present. Thank you for joining me today. I'm your host, Ahmed Mazmi from Princeton University. And I'm your co-host, Jenny Peruski from Harvard University. Today, I'm here to talk to Professor Prita Mayer, the author of Swahili Port Cities, The Architecture of Elsewhere, published by Indiana University Press in 2016. Prita Mayer is Associate Professor of Art History at New York University. By discussing this book, we will explore the contested meanings of the built landscapes of still thriving East African ports, including Mombasa, Lamu, and Zanzibar. The book frames these places as porous sites, whose architectures are constituted by itinerant practices of belonging that fundamentally challenge the racialized logic of colonialism and the nation state. Welcome, Prita, to New Books in the Indian Ocean World, and thanks so much for taking the time to talk about your book today. Thank you so much to both of you for inviting me to speak about my book. I'm really excited to actually have this opportunity to share my book with a wider audience. Thank you. We would like to start by learning about you. If you can start this off by saying a few words about yourself, where did you grow up, where you went to school, how you became interested in art history in East Africa, and uh, if you had any influential mentors along the way. Sure, I'd love to start that. Um, telling you a little bit, I guess what many would have called or still would call um, and a little bit of an uh, unconventional childhood. I spent most of my childhood in uh, various communes, uh, including in rural Germany, but also in India and other parts of South Asia and also um, in Amsterdam. So my childhood was really extremely um, itinerant. Um, And uh, since my parents were really, quite frankly, just uh, um, hippies, countercultural hippies, we spent a lot of our childhood, even when we were, or a lot of my time when we were even living in India, traveling across the Middle East and South Asia and Southeast Asia. And that really had a major impact in what I was interested in as I became older and when I became um, an art historian. Now, it just happened to that by accident, my parents uh, immigrated to Florida when I was in high school. And uh, that was in some ways you know, uh, sort of supposed to be a temporary space that we would land, but we ended up living there actually until uh, I lived in Florida until I went to college and also went to the University of Florida for my undergraduate degree, where um, just by dumb luck, I happened to um, major in uh, art history and the art history department had a really well-known Africanist art historian Um, And I did my um, undergraduate degree um, with him. And in some ways from then onward, there was no, from then onward, there was really no looking back. I did my master's at the University of Iowa, which in the 1990s uh, was an amazing um, concentration of Africanists who worked on um, the visual cultures and arts of Africa. So I had a whole coterie of uh, mentors there, including Um, The now well-known Africanists uh, like uh, Bill Dewey, Al Roberts, Polly Nooter Roberts, Vicky Rowine, Chris Roy. Um, So it's like it was a place in the 90s where you had, you know, a real deep concentration of people who worked on the arts and visual cultures of Africa. 
Um, but in between, um, I took a year off um, I could, uh, between doing my master's and my PhD, and I started actually uh, working as an intern at the Michigan State University Museum um, to redo their African art uh, installation. And there I became f- um, friends with um, uh, a professor of African art history who is now a professor at the University of Michigan, Ray Silverman. And he's really, in some ways, the key um, mentor of mine that shifted my perspective of what kind of Africanist art historian I wanted to be. And he um, really pioneered the study of what now is often called the Islamic arts of Africa. So the Islamic arts of sub-Saharan Africa. He was one of the few people who focused on that um, for various reasons in Africanist art history. Islamic arts of Africa was looked at even with um, some suspicion. Certainly it was the margins of the discipline. It didn't fit into what would be considered quote unquote canonical African art. It wasn't small, it wasn't based on small community uh, practices, communal practices. It was part of the global UMA. It was seen as suspiciously foreign. Um, but Ray had been doing incredibly pioneering work on the Islamic arts of Ghana, for example, long before anyone even thought that was a legitimate um, um, sort of topic of study. And he really, um, in some ways, cemented and gave me the courage to focus on the Swahili arts of, Swahili, uh, of East Africa, which again was always almost just a minor footnote mentioned in passing in uh, courses or books uh, and um, articles written by Africanist art historians. Then I had the good uh, fortune to work with uh, Professor Suzanne Blier at Harvard University. I did my PhD with her. And she was also and still remains to be a key mentor of mine because she's one of those amazing mentors who demands of her students that they ask larger questions and that they really work hard at making sort of um, uh, to um, they re- she really challenges all of her students to write dissertations that really challenge disciplinary norms and sort of push the study of, let's say, the arts of Africa um, into new directions. So that those are in some ways the people who formed in some my scholarship up to this day. Thank you for that. Um, so interesting to hear about your background and what brought you to this moment of writing um, Swahili Port Cities. Um, and so maybe turning then more specifically towards your book, um, I understand that this research developed out of your PhD dissertation, Local Cityscapes and Transcultural Imaginaries, Competing Architectures of Mombasa. Is that correct? And if yes. so, how, oh, okay, cool. Um, uh, <laughs> how did that initial dissertation idea develop? What was your research process like and how did you develop it from a dissertation to a book? Um, yeah, it was a long and arduous uh, tr- uh, transformation from dissertation to book, I have to tell you, but I'll get into the details of that. So by the time I was already, by the time I was doing my master's at the University of Iowa, I had already committed to focusing on the arts and architectures of the port cities of the Swahili coast, because they are just, I even realized early on that they were incredibly productive to think with and to question sort of the 
um, received paradigms of what constitutes African art, African culture, right? Because they were, uh, in some ways, port cities are oceanic, port cities are transitory spaces, they're spaces of transition, they, um, of course, are deeply connected to the African heartland, the mainland, but they're also always faced towards the ocean. Um, and because Swahili um, port cities have been historically Muslim um, cultural complexes, they from the beginning troubled Africanist um, art history, as I had been taught um, since undergraduate. So I was already focused on that from um, the beginning. And I was always, in some ways, I was lucky because once I ended the PhD program, I knew that this is what I wanted to focus on. And so um, when I started developing my dissertation, um, I um, so was sort of in some ways struggling how and where to anchor my research. Should I do multiple cities? Um, should I focus on one city? Um, and for my dissertation, I, for the, especially for the proposal, I um, focused on Mombasa, um, just because in some ways I needed a, a strong sort of physical anchor because one striking feature about littoral societies and coastal societies is, of course, they take you, they're conduits. So they take you in many directions constantly. So in some ways it was particularly challenging to anchor myself and I anchored myself um, in a um, single city. Mombasa, uh, because in many ways I was um, very much still dedicated to the tradition of rigorous um, at least one year of field work for the dissertation. In some ways, I'm trained as an Africanist, uh, where you have to do at least one, you know, one sustained continuous year of field work in one site. Um, and so I had uh, I received a Fulbright Hayes dissertation research fellowship which brought me to Mombasa to do my research. And once, of course, um, you land in Mombasa and you, you know, try to figure out what even the questions uh, it is that you're trying to ask, you're, of course, faced with the intense reality of everyday lived experiences um, of people living in Mombasa. And I didn't even focus on all of Mombasa. I really just focused on Old Town Mombasa, that is the historical heart of the old harbor town. And in some ways it was a tiny part of contemporary um, Mombasa, uh, what it is actually today. And to tell you the truth, in some ways what I did was completely contrarian of what a sort of good art historian should have done because I mean, I had been going to Zanzibar, Lamu, Mombasa, you know, for short summer research trips long before I started my um, year-long dissertation research and I mean as anybody will know is that Lamu and Zanzibar of course are visually much more compelling right they have a they're, they're these picturesque um, heritage sites that have been renovated and in some ways reinvented also for the tourist industry and um, Lamu is celebrated as sort of the last bastion of a classic pure in some people's worldview, um, Swahili um, heritage that hasn't been sort of mucked up or become too colonial or too post-colonial. Um, but ra but uh, um, for the fact 
that Mombasa was actually none of those things. Mombasa is very much, even Old Town, is not at all a pretty revitalized heritage site that's easily consumed um, um, by tourists. It doesn't even have a single tourist hotel within uh, the boundaries of Old Town. And it doesn't have sort of this very um, beautiful classic Swahili style of architecture. Now it's there if you look carefully, but in some ways, you know, in some ways it's totally counterproductive for an architect, uh, for an architectural and art historian to do their dissertation research on a city that is actually not at all at first glance aesthetically seductive and doesn't have major monuments to do research on, right? But in some ways I was um, in my uh, uh, early um, years doing uh, my dissertation, really in some ways also trying to a little bit, I don't know, critique the discipline of Africanist art history, which of course focuses on beautiful monuments, well-known sculptures, sort of the canon um, of um, African art. And so I picked a city that almost doesn't make sense for that. Of course, it's made my life uh, difficult later on, but that's um, another story. Um, But so for me, Mombasa was also this place that was so extremely alive from the perspective of lived experience. Now, that doesn't mean that Zanzibar and Mombasa are not equally alive from lived experience. But what fascinated me, um, that which is a little bit different from Zanzibar and Lamu, is that um, there is a group of um, ancient families uh, that now um, um, claim the title of belonging to what's called the Tenashara Taifa, or the Federation of Twelve, um, which are 12 indigenous lineages, you know, they still have a very active, vibrant role in Old Town, and they have contested um, colonial, including Busaidi Omani claims, British claims, and also recent main, uh, mainland claims to Mombasa. They're very much a vibrant, strong voice that still live in Old Town and that um, still have, you know, constantly... Um, push back against new claims or new communities um, living in the town. So I was really fascinated in the fact that this, the Tenashara uh, Taifa was so present in the town and that, you know, for example, some of the most sort of um, vibrant public historians of old Mombasa, old town Mombasa, that I had met briefly on uh, preliminary research trips like um, Mzim uh, Mohamed Motano were members of the uh, one of the lineages of the Tenashara uh, Taifa who really had these very strong views and claims to the city. So I really, in some ways, wanted to do um, even though I, w- I am trained and I'm committed to be an art and architectural historian, I wanted to focus on these oral histories. I wanted to really do a rigorous history of the urban life and the material life of old uh, town Mombasa. And in some ways, what happened then, I would say that in terms of mentors, the most important mentor after my academic uh, mentors at u- in universities in North America was um, Zay Matano, who passed away um, in 2015 um, before my book was published. But he really took me under his wing 
Um, and I spent hours interviewing him, interviewing members of his community. That um, And of course, the longer I lived in Mombasa, I became aware that Mombasa, of course, is multiple cities, right? In some ways, without a doubt, my version of Mombasa, the history of Mombasa that I told in the dissertation, and in some ways also tell um, in the book, uh, uh, in the subsequent book, really focuses on the perspective or the version of Mombasa um, of the Tenashara Taifa. But one of the, of course, complications of um, doing urban field work, although I'm sure this is not just a matter of urban field work, but nonetheless, um, Mombasa is a densely uh, multiple city city in some ways. There are many cities within Mombasa because there are multiple um, communities living just in this tiny space of Old Town Mombasa that includes mainland Africans, uh, Badalath, Isnasharis, Hindu communities, new Arabs, old Arabs. Um, so what I also became aware of the longer I lived in Mombasa that of course there were all of these communities who all had their own version versions of Mombasa. So the dissertation uh, really um, focused on the multiplicity of those stories, although always emphasizing uh, 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 the Tenashara, uh, the Federation of 12 um, perspective. And I also did an intense amount of archival research for the dissertation on urban planning politics, on the making of the colonial state. I went to the Kenya National Archives. Um, and I also did make, uh, did take also short research trips to Zanzibar and Lamu, because of course, when you start doing sort of deep research of any Swahili port city, you realize that there are in some ways neighborhoods or fragments of other port cities. So you can't really do um, Mombasa without understanding Lamu um, or Zanzibar. Of course, you also then realize you can't do Mombasa without understanding heartland uh, caravan towns like Ujiji or Tabora or uh, Muscat in Oman. But nonetheless, I, you know, I became more and more aware that actually port city research always takes you um, to other places. And then I came back from field work and had to write up my dissertation that had all of these endless, you know, in some ways I didn't really know where I was going to take the dissertation. Was it going to be Zanzibar and Lamu and Zanzibar uh, and Mombasa? Should I include Ujiji, Tabora, Muscat? Of course, I would have written, I would have never finished um, my dissertation. So quite frankly, with the advice of my uh, dissertation advisor, Suzanne Preston Belier, I decided, I decided to focus really into a case study for the dissertation on Zanz, uh, on Mombasa, but really it never stayed there. I mean, if you read the dissertation, it's full of, um, anecdotes or links or connections to all the other port cities that are key um, uh, to Mombasa as well. And then for the dissertation, I realized that, um, I realized that the dissertation in some ways, the title that it was about Mombasa was not in fact really accurate. Um, and I understood that for the book, I had to really anchor my multi-layered narrative. Um, I really always struggled in the dissertation to make sense of all of these multiple voices, multiple stories I wanted to tell. And the story I really wanted to tell is, you know, how the colonial moment, this watershed moment, 
um, really radically reconfigured how people interpreted the material remains, the physical built environment, right? That all of a sudden new categories of signification like race, ethnicity started being projected onto the built um, landscape, um, including the built landscape of Mombasa, Lamu and Zanzibar. Um, at the same time, I was deeply committed to um, historical ethnography that is focusing really on how really the many post histories of the built landscape, how uh, people's memories, practices, engagements with the built landscape uh, changes over time. And by built landscape, I don't just mean sort of the large monuments, although I do focus on those as well, but the large man, of course I focus on large monuments in the book, like merchant mansions, mosques, palatial structures like the House of Wonders, but also the interior of the built landscape, like um, inter uh, um, the living spaces in these merchant mansions. So, I mean, I have a very sort of like larger definition of built uh, landscape, basically the entire urbanscape and how people make a living um, in the urbanscape, but again, I had I was struggling how to anchor it. So, for the from the dissertation to the book, I made the choice uh, to write uh, four chapters that were really, in some ways, distinct case studies of very concrete things. That is to anchor my multiple multiple strands analysis of the urbanscape of Swahili port cities in concrete case studies, right? So I did the urban fabric, the urban layout of Mombasa, um, and then specific mosques, a single palace for one chapter, and then the microcosm of interiors of uh, people's houses. So that allowed me then to anchor what really is in some ways this constant moving back and forth between the past and present. Um, uh, how people like um, um, Zema Tano and other key people in Old Town, but also people living in Lamu in Zanzibar, narrate their understanding of the built heritage, how they understand um, how the built heritage um, sort of changed how they relate to the their past. Um, and one thing that um, Zema Tano really um, helped me see uh, is that um, while, without a doubt, colonialism was exploitative and unjust, and it radically reconfigured how people relate to their past, to their built heritage, local people, right? There's this contestation to this day very much alive in all Swahili port cities where people are asking themselves, um, whose heritage is this? How can, how do we define the built heritage, especially the stone coral buildings that are recognized for their grandeur and beauty. How do we categorize it? Who's, who does this belong to, right? If you ask people in Kenya today, if you ask people in Zanzibar today, there's a contestation, is this architecture, how should we label it? Whose culture is it? Is this the architecture of quote unquote, the Swahili people? which of course raises the question, who are the Swahili people? Is this an Arab architectural form? Is this a mainland architectural form? Who does it belong to, right? And Mzee Mantano really showed me that, um, 
that I have to foreground individual interpretations of these larger questions. The other thing that Mzee Matano really showed me is that, yes, colonialism was a watershed moment that radically reconfigured and radically, um, you know, um, changed the politics of interpretation of these forms. In some ways, um, there isn't, uh, in some ways, Swahili built history, Swahili built form, Swahili ways of living in port cities and making port cities um, uh, was not interrupted by colonialism, that Swahili ways of building port cities, of making port cities, of living in port cities is an ancient practice and that colonialism was just a layer a layer of many um, ancient practices. And one of those ancient practices is that Swahili port cities have always been places that are connected and constituted by um, networks and building community across the Indian Ocean. Now they're also about networks and building community across the mainland into the heartland of Africa but because of the symbolic significance of claiming um, Swahili port cities to be Muslim port cities, this emphasis on connecting Africa and connecting Swahili cities to the oceanic, to the larger world across the Indian Ocean, uh, that is the larger world of uh, global Islam. And this narrative of, this, of port cities being about um, a global community of Muslims becomes incredibly important and is incredibly important to uh, how people, no matter what ethnicity or lineage they claim, um, is incredibly important to people in Mombasa, Lamu, um, um, and Zanzibar um, today. Wonderful, thank you for that. Um, super fascinating look at kind of the interconnections between the cities um, in Lamu, Mombasa, Zanzibar, and even beyond there to elsewhere across the Indian Ocean. Um, and maybe now is a good point to jump into the chapters to take a little closer look at your book. Sure. Um, the, the book consists of four chapters, each focusing on a small number of buildings uh, or a series of interconnected spaces, as you alluded to, within a specific city. Uh in the introduction entitled uh, The Place in Between, uh, you raise a lot of big questions relating to the historiography of the Swahili coast, namely, where do Africa, Asia, and Europe begin and end, as you said? How is, uh, quote-unquote, international and or, quote-unquote, foreign defined by a residence of the Swahili coast, as you've discussed? Um, and what is the relationship between past and present? Um, and you've expanded on these points uh uh, by uh, unpacking the notion of the uh, the place in between, right? Mm -hmm. um, and in relation to that, uh, uh, on page 13, you say, uh, uh, quote, while in reality, stone and earthen structures uh, intermingle and are part of the same spectrum of building technology, conceptually, stone uh, is linked to the sea and earthen houses to mainland Africa. If you can elaborate a little bit on this sentence by thinking about the relationship between building materials and coastal identities. How do you see these two enmeshed together? Oh, yeah, that's an important question. So 
you know, I, to first go back to your point about, you know, it is true that in my introduction and in, uh, certainly even throughout the book, I very much constantly raise questions of methodology and historiography. And, you know, there's, of course, many ways of doing scholarship, uh, but it's always been my practice um, to really foreground, you know, the politics of interpretation, even of my own scholarship or my introduction. I very clearly signpost all the different sort of disciplinary discussions that I seek to intervene in or what specific sort of adjacent disciplines um, that I'm sort of engaging, like archaeology, anthropology, and history, which are, of course, not my own disciplines. Um, because what really fascinated me and always to this day um, fascinates me is how different disciplinary training will cause you to ask different questions of the um, subject matter that you're interested in. So I was already, when I was doing my MA, and certainly when I was doing my PhD, fascinated that sort of the questions that people were asking about Swahili port cities depended very much on what discipline that the scholar was from. And what I was really aware is about is that um, the, even, you know, the fact that the Swahili coast sort of exists at the margins of African uh, cultural studies had to do with the fact that um, Africanists just were not trained to ask questions about places that were transcultural, that were transnational, that were oceanic. Um, and of course, that made me realize that the sort of old area studies paradigm, and of course, I was part of a wave in the 1990s, um, in uh, the humanities and the social sciences, where people were starting to question, you know, what are the what are the advantages and disadvantages of the area studies paradigms that we did research in, right? That is, a, uh, Asian studies or South Asian studies, African studies, Middle East studies, right? Um, and when I asked this question in the beginning of my book, where does Africa, Asia, uh, and Europe begin and end, the Swahili coast, of course, although all places, I think, will allow one to question those um, continental categories to make sense of history and lived experience. But the Swahili coast really sort of flows those sort of those the, the simplistic nature of using continental categories to make sense of history and people. Um, uh, the simplistic nature of those categories throws uh, that really into sharp relief. And so, you know, you realize that from the perspective of an Africanist who's trained to focus, let's say, on mainland Africa, Swahili coast culture and the cities itself are very African. If you're trained like a South Asianist, you see many South Asian cultural histories alive and well um, in um, in Zanzibar, Mombasa, and Lamu, and certainly if you're a scholar of Europe, because of the, you know, of course, impact of colonialism, you could also see many aspects of, uh, of Zanzibar, Lamu, and Mombasa that are very European, right? So really, from the, if you shift from different, uh, if you shift your focus from different disciplinary lenses onto Swahili port cities, they are really these prisms of multiplicity, Right. So again, how do you try to then anchor your analysis of prisms of multiplicity? I realized that the best way to do that was to focus on built form. That is something as seemingly end, sort of timelessly permanent 
and dense as stone architecture, right? Stoneworked architecture, because it's seen as this ancient, unchanging um, heritage, right? But then when you look at the building tradition um, of a stone or the, the way that stone architecture is narrated from the local perspective, it's always narrated as you, as you pointed out in um, what you had just quoted from my book as somehow being more about uh, somehow being oriented towards the sea, right? That, that makes it the stone architecture, the building of cities using um, coral stone masonry architectural technologies makes Zanzibar, Lamu and Mombasa distinct from the African mainland. Now that is really a symbolic strategy because as archeologists have a, a symbolic claim, right? Because in reality, you know, um, building technologies don't rupture radically once they get to the Swahili coast. It's a, I mean, built stone is of course also used in mainland architectural um, forms. And if you do a close analysis, there is no radical rupture, but for, the making of a claim of significance of these, of singular importance of Zanzibar, Lamu, Mombasa as Muslim port cities, right, that belong to the sisterhood and brotherhood of global Islam. There begins, you know, in the oral histories, um, um, an emphasis on claiming that building in stone is a way to create Islamic space on the Swahili coast. Now, this is a distinctly Swahili interpretation of built architecture because, of course, in other parts of the larger Muslim world, this sort of, sort of focus on this, like really honing in that architecture built in coral stone makes this city a Muslim city. This, when we could even say an obsession, is of course not um, in place in other parts of, uh, of of the Muslim world. For example, Tuaregs, you know, transhuman uh, cultures of the Sahara, of course, build Muslim space with you know impermanent architecture. There's not this this claiming of stone as being so exceptional. Exceptional is um, not there. But for the Swahili coast narration, especially. I want to emphasize the Swahili coast narration of the past, um, of this past in the 20th century. This becomes absolutely um, essential. Um, and of course, what is also important to point out, and I get into this in other parts of the book, is that um, as a building technology that is turning coral stone into permanent stone um, monuments is a unique technology that. Um, artists, craftsmen, architects really master on the Swahili coast because turning um, living coral um, or dry, port, uh, dry coral into monumental stone architecture is a unique way of turning uh, the earth into a permanent architecture. But I wanted to also get back to your point about this, you know, my notion of the in-between. In some ways, of course, uh, that's that's really the abiding um, conceptual framework for the entire book, that the Swahili coast, its architecture um, is a place of in-between. Now, I mean also, I mean that on many levels, on also an intellectual or historiographic uh, level, I mean that uh, the Swahili coast is a place of in-between area studies or between the accepted boundaries that we have drawn around 
cultures, right? The idea that there are this thing, there is such a distinct thing as Asian culture, African culture, European culture, Middle Eastern culture, right? To me, these are um, still very much alive uh, truisms that certainly have their origins in nation building in the late 19th or 18th, 19th century. Um, but of course, these are conceptual um, leftovers from the age of empire. Although, again, they're, they are more with us than, than they ever have been today in this age, for sure. But the Swahili, the, the Swahili coast, the culture of the Swahili coast, the history of the arts of the Swahili coast, of course, trouble the truism, truisms of that, right? They really explode the fabricated notion that we can um, create ethnic or continental boundaries around history and the making of culture, right? Because one thing um, that is absolutely without a doubt so incredibly wonderful to think with and uh, uh, to think with that is the history of Swahili art is that um, it is not anchored in one um, nation state. It's not anchored in one continent. It's not um, anchored in one civilizational narrative, right? Because it's art, that's an art practice. It's a urban history that is about transnational connections. It's about a building cities that look like places far away. Now, of course, these cities are unquestionably African cities, if you want to focus on that aspect, because they're built on the African continent, um, for sure. But in some ways, they are about strategic ways of overcoming the limitations of being part of one locality. And port cities are merchant cities and, of course, sites of in, uh, intense economic, cultural and social competition, right? So they, and everybody, of course, interesting throughout the history of Swahili port cities, tries to claim them for themselves, right? So there's today, to this day, this contestation, are these cities Arab? Are these cities African, right? And one thing that is absolutely fascinating um, to me, although I very much lay out in the introduction um, that uh, without a doubt, the um, scholarship uh, that came of age in the post-independence period on the material remains and built heritage of the Swahili coast proved that Africans built Swahili port cities. But of course, Africans are complex, uh, multi-layered societies themselves, right? But it was very important during the colonial uh, to overcome colonial narratives um, and colonialist and racist colonialist interpretations of the built heritage of the Swahili coast in the 60s and 70s. So archaeologists really showed us that uh, there is nothing um, simply foreign about the stone architecture of the Swahili coast, that it wasn't just bro brought, quote unquote, as colonial era. Um, um, archaeologists wanted to claim that as colonial era British archaeologists wanted to claim that the ancient uh, great remains of uh, cities like Kilwa and Husuni Kubwa were um, built by quote unquote Arab colonialists in the um, distant past. That that is absolutely not true. That is a racist interpretation um, of of architecture. Um, but absolutely. there is. 
right? As you know, as you know. <laughs> and so, you know, but it's interesting um, that, you know, uh, even though I laid that out very clear in the inter uh, introduction, I oftentimes get, um, you know, people saying, well, are you saying it's not African, right? There's, because there is still, especially in East Africa, you know, um, there is, but also among scholars of a certain generations, there is this, what I would call maybe unfairly, but that's how I see it, an obsession with origins, you know, can you get to the essential ethnic racial origins of a built heritage, which in some ways, of course, is a very strange project, right? We don't have this obsession with trying to get to the ethnic racial heritage, for example, of Gothic architecture of, you know, 14th century Germany, right? I mean, but there's this, this strange, this quiet that still shapes um, how Swahili coast cities um, are interpreted. And really in my introduction, I try to really clearly lay out how um, we have to um, move beyond that without, of course, forgetting that strategically there is a claim to the elsewhere through stone architecture that Swahili merchants and Swahili merchants have, of course, family connections to Main, uh, mainland Africa, to the Arabian Peninsula, to other port cities along the Swahili coast. But there is a strategic claim to say this stone architecture is like the stone architecture of, let's say, um, the um, uh, Arabian Peninsula or, for example, Shiraz or ancient Persia, because it's strategically smart for merchants to claim belonging to other important port cities across the ocean, important port cities that before the early modern, uh, before the colonial and modern period um, were, of course, part of a network of Muslim trading um, cultures, right? So this connection to other Muslim centers was absolutely um, essential. So there was a strategic claim. It's important to make that point that says these cities are oceanic cities. These are Muslim cities. And the stone architecture makes us oceanic Muslim cities. Absolutely. From the, from the form of technology and real history of material form, they are part of the earthen built structure of Africa as well. Absolutely. And I think from your introduction, we get a real sense of the broader scope of these connections between East a the coastal East Africa and inland East Africa, but also these connections broader and that these aren't simple binaries. Yes. Um, and so then kind of going into your chapters, I think what's really interesting is that each of these chapters kind of breaks down different aspects of interconnectivity between space and um, kind of artistic expression and kind of broader historiographic issues of how we really come to see individuals' place in the world. And so I'm going to jump ahead a little bit um, towards chapter four, mm, okay. where um, you talk about the stone house and as you have talked about um, in many places, but particularly in your book, the stone house on the Swahili coast is historiographically fraught. Can you discuss some of the issues in approaching the Swahili home and your intervention in this chapter on the nature of cultural consumption on the Swahili coast and the boundaries between local and foreign associations with objects? Oh, yes. that's a, a, Yes, there's nothing... You really uh, 
uh, honed in on this. Yeah, um, yeah, stone houses on the Swahili coast are very historically fraught. In some ways, I was already um, alluding to that in my uh, what I was just saying um, a, a few moments ago. Um, but there is nothing more overdetermined and sort of overladen with ideological contestations, at least from my perspective, than the stone house of the Swahili coast, right? In some ways, right, the sort of seemingly relatively humble, but also, of course, beautiful structure, like these, you know, merchant mansions, you know, oftentimes no higher than, you know, the most grandiose, or maybe three at the most four stories high, right? They, you know, symbolize the sort of permanence of elite families, right? I mean, in the until the 19th century, really only freeborn, wealthy uh, merchant or plantation-owning families had the pedigree and the financial means to build stone merchant houses. Because um, building um, in coral stone is actually an incredibly laborious, complex technology. You can't build a stone house, even if you have a thousand um, uh, masons ready to build it in one month, because um, coral stone has to set coral rag, especially when it's still alive, when it's still coral, is a very malleable soft stone that, of course, allows you to manipulate it and carve it and turn it into load-bearing walls and intricate decorative um, um, ornamental programs, right? But it, you have to build it very slowly, right? And usually a stone house belonged to a family for generations and it was slowly expanded on, you know, it, it turned into a multi sort of like, and, and sort of multi uh, had multiple um, uh, uh, um, roofs uh, and um, sections and stages and it took a long time to build, right? So it already has this sort of like this idea that it represents the permanence of really powerful pedigreed families, the Wangwana of the Swahili coast, as they're called in, in Swahili, right? And to be the rightful owner of a family uh, of an ancient stone mansion means that your family has pedigree, right? Your family has always lived on the Swahili coast. I mean, of course, these, this can be a fiction. You can actually buy, of course, a, a house, but that's another story. But nonetheless, uh, these are sort of these, what's again so wonderfully uh, paradoxical, stone houses have this sort of the sheen of eternal permanence, right, um, on them or in them. You can project this idea that your family have always lived on the Swahili coast. Your family has always been an important Muslim family that has been the, the gatekeeper and the keeper of classic Swahili Muslim culture, right? Um, but of course... What happens in the 19th century, and perhaps it happened earlier, but we really can track it from the 19th century onward, is that the Swahili stone house, of course, is extremely, becomes extremely contested because it's seen as this ancient simple symbol of heritage and culture that people who live in the stone houses of port cities, they are the gatekeepers, the fathers and mothers of the city. Um, you, by claiming stone architecture and stone houses as your heritage, you also have claims to the, the cities themselves. You are the, the, the gatekeepers, the keepers of these cities. You are the owners of the cities, right? So claims to stone houses also then become 
claims to the rights of the city, the rights of the city, of course, also including the being the beneficiaries of its economies, right, of um, controlling the uh, global, you know, the global economy in commodity trade, the global economy in the creation of uh, plantation crops like cloves um, and grains, right, to feed the global um, um, capitalist economy, right, or you are, of course, the beneficiaries and the owners of enslaved Africans who are building, you know, and well, who are um, the workers and the laborers on these huge um, coastal plantations that start being uh, established on the Swahili coast in the early 19th century by uh, the Busaidi sultans and um, their, um, you know, intermediaries, including South Asian um, financiers. And of course, um, the consumers of these commodities like spices and grains, which of course is Europe. So all of a sudden there's this question about what is, whose rights are, who owns stone houses? Whose heritage is it, right? Because during the colonial period, you start having this disenfranchisement of ownership of stone houses, of, uh, um, um, of, of the, of, the, of Swahili coast old um, lineages like the Tenashara Taifa, right? They become marginalized in their own cities. They start losing control over the stone heritage of the Swahili coast. And more and more, you see, of course, the rise of um, powerful Arab families, um, new coming, newcomers, or, uh, I want to emphasize, have always been old Swahili Arab families living on the Swahili coast. But with the um, colonization of the Swahili coast uh, by the Busaidi, Dynasty, um, of course, Bausaidi and um, uh, and other important Omani families become uh, also start claiming the stone architecture and the stone houses of the Swahili coast, including um, in Mombasa. So more and more, you have then stone houses being connected to Arabness and connected to that it is the heritage of Arabs, and you have this uh, disenfranchisement of what we would call now Swahili indigenous families. And of course, uh, in the historiography, um, this becomes an issue, right? Who is the Swahili heritage? Is this African heritage? Is this Arab heritage? Um, and then also the larger question is, why celebrate stone houses as the great heritage or the great cultural um, monuments of the Swahili coast when from the perspective of many mainland Africans who were enslaved, who came to the coast as unfree laborers to work on plantations. Um, this heritage are, you know, remind these stone houses, these mer ostentatious merchant mansions are symbols of the violence and violation of their bodies, of their people, right? Because without a doubt, some of the grandest stone houses of the Swahili coast were built with the unprecedented, mass, unprecedented massive wealth of slaving families, right? So one beautiful thing about stone houses is because they are permanent, they still stand, they act as scaffolding of unforgetting. That is, people refuse to forget these popular histories that are told, for example, that are still told today, that stone houses house the remains of the embodies of the enslaved. 
that there are there that people had sacrificed enslaved Africans um, to strengthen the walls of the most ostentatious and beautiful stone houses, right? So then the question is, well, why are we set from a perspective of a main from a mainlander? Why are we even celebrating this um, history or, or this heritage, right? And these are the things that, of course, I grapple with. Um, all the time in the book. And without a doubt, when you ask people on the Swahili coast uh, what Swahili architecture is, it really depends who you ask. For many people, the Swahili architecture is not stone houses, but the earthen architecture of Makuti houses, right, that are built with palm fronds historically. Yes, um, and, and you unpack this beautifully and distangle these contestations uh, throughout the book. Uh, in chapter one, um, difference sit in stone, a place and race in Mombasa. In chapter two, a curious minaret, sacred place and the politics of Islam. And chapter three, architecture out of place, the politics of style in Zanzibar. I'd like to ask you if you can bring these three chapters together to think about race, to think about Islam and the politics of style uh, between uh, what you call the moment of rupture right and and after mm-hmm. how do you see race islam and style coming together and coming apart uh, after colonialism into the 20th century wow that is a very very large question but a very important <laughs> question i'll i'll yeah. try to do it justice Whew. um so you know for me the, in some ways, one of the, for me, the hardest chapter to tell you to, uh, to write and the one that I knew was the most controversial, but in some ways the most important was chapter, um, was chapter two. I mean, it starts with chapter one, the different set in stone, right? Uh, but it really continues with uh, chapter two about these two uh, pre-colonial mosques, um, the Mandri Mosque and the Besheikh Mosque. And they are stone-built monuments that have an ancient um, history. Um, One dates to the 16th century and one, uh, I think, to the 14th century. Um, And so these are these ancient buildings, stone buildings, right, perceived as permanent and unchanging, right? Um, Like all stone architecture of the Swahili coast, these monuments become incredibly contested the same way the larger urban uh, fabric of Mombasa becomes contested in terms of who has the right to these cities. And and these terms are played out um, in uh, in the context of Islam um, and race and built form, right? Style, right? You perfectly honed in on these three things that interplay with each other in a very complicated way, right? So my point is that, of course, the perceived uh, permanence of stone in some ways is really just a a fiction because the constant ways uh, different plural and transitory associations are projected onto particular buildings, right? This, I mean, and without a doubt, I map out um, in the first chapter, different set in stone, um, how architecture and the built environment um, becomes racialized and becomes 
um, through really the colonial project that is the British colonial project, although it's important to say and scholars um, like Jonathan Glassman have also really powerfully argued that um, to say that there were no issue that, that the Busaidi colonizers had no notion of race and did not racialize is also not true. And in fact, I found many archival sources that really also show this uh, sort of the racialized hierarchies that Busaidi colonizers were projecting onto the architecture. Although one could also, of course, say that Busaidis were also appropriating British colonial um, categories as well. That's a very another very complicated uh, and very contested um, uh, sort of footnote, but I, it's important for me to signal that right now in this moment. Yeah, but that nostalgia for yeah. a perfect, almost timeless past in which everything was better in other yeah. terms. There was a lack yeah. of racialization and all of that. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. You point that out. You know, I mean, I mean, the writing of history of, of uh, port cities in the Indian Ocean, not just Swahili port cities, of course, is really complicated because they're always connected to, you know, they are, in fact, connected to ethnic histories and written in the modern period, right? So there's, you know, the question of, um, you know, what the Busaidi role was um, and who, you know, what kind of you know, sort of what kind of history the um, Omanis had and what kind of, you know, how, what kind of colonizers the Busaidis were is very contested. Many people have this romantic notion, as you know, and many people, of course, who return um, from Oman to the Swahili coast after um, the 1964 revolution of Zanzibar, of course, you know, have a very different sense of their heritage and their culture or their impact on the Swahili coast, right? I mean, that whole side, and I, I'm grappling with more and more, but that's, I just want to emphasize, that's a very complicated story, but certainly this idea that, um, uh, you know, plantation slavery or um, Omani Busaidi colonialism was benign. It was just some sort of, sort of like, you know, brotherhood among Africans and Arabs is of course also not accurate. Nonetheless, I do want to emphasize right here in this moment that this, you know, this colonialist narrative of "quote unquote" evil Arab um, slavery is also a complete um, simplification and a racist colonialist narrative projected um, onto um, the Middle East. Right. So there's this. That's also important to uh, emphasize. But what I do in my chapter one and two is focus on how, in fact built form is racialized, both the style and who has access to it. And let's focus on the, the particularities of these two mosques as sort of case studies. Um, the Mandri Mosque and the Basheikh Mosque um, were, according to um, Talatha Taifa elders, right? And I want to emphasize, this is, again, what makes urban history so complicated. There are, of course, multiple communities living in Old Town Mombasa who all have, in many ways, their own um, claims and their own interpretation of the heritage of Old Town, right? In Chapter 2, I definitely focus on the Talatha, um, which is a subset of the uh, uh, Tanashara Taifa, right? It's a feder the federation of three, right? I definitely focus on their narration of how 
they are um, how their claims to Islam and built stone architecture gets delegitimized um, during the colonial period and how they are racialized and how this the Talatha Taifa and the Tenashara Taifa or the Swahili people are, are turned into quote unquote native Africans while certain other families um, like the Busaidis or the Mandris who are old Arab families who've been living for generations on the Swahili coast and of course have intermarried with locals for generations get to start claiming being Arabs, right? And of course claiming an Arab identity in the colonial racialized hierarchy of the British empire give gave some advantages. You were still a colonized subject, right? But you had some advantages. And these politics start playing out in these um, two mosques, right? So to give you sort of an um, anchor in the architectural history of those mosques, the Mandri Mosque um, has many um, histories. Um, it's this, it's a, it has a firm uh, foundation date in the 16th century, and it's connected to an old um, um, Arabian Peninsula family, the Mandri, who came to the Swahili coast, according to oral histories, in the 16th century, or perhaps a little bit later. Of course, um, oral histories have uh, different um, dates, depending on who you ask. Then there is the, uh, the Basheikh Mosque, but it's important um, to point out that the Basheikh Mosque has many names. The Basheikh Mosque is also called the Tangana Mosque, uh, mosque or the Minara Mosque. The Tangana, uh, Minara just means minaret or tower in Swahili. Tangana is the name of a, um, of a lineage within the Tenashara um, uh, Federation, within the Tenashara Taifa. Um, and according to the um, interpretation of what happened to these mosques, um, uh, according to members of the Taifas, right, these ancient indigenous lineages who have always claimed um, Mombasa as their rightful city, um, they are, a, that is the Taifas built the mosques, both of, both of them, right? According to their oral histories, right? Of course, oral histories, like all histories, say more about the present than the original moment that they uh, describe. But, uh, um, but nonetheless, they make uh, emphasize that both the Mandri and the Basheikh Mosque were built by Taifa. Um, uh, peoples originally, and that the Mandri Mosque was given to the Mandri in the uh, distant past, sometime after the 16th century. And similarly, that the um, Basheikh Mosque, uh, the Basheikh Mosque, which is not, uh, which is called the Basheikh Mosque now, Basheikh being an important, um, learned um, family from originally the Arabian Peninsula and was originally also a um, indigenous uh, Taifa mosque connected to the Tangana um, uh, lineage within the Talatha Taifa. Um, but what happens during colonialism that under the British administration, Arabs really became the state-sponsored stewards of Islam. So the ancient practices of Islam by quote-unquote Swahilis and Taifa members 
become Swahilis during the colonial administration. That is natives, that is they belong to the ethnic group Swahilis and the making of Swahili as a distinct ethnicity can be traced back really to the colonial period, right? Um, their ways of practicing Islam, their textual interpretation of Islam um, becomes more and more delegitimized um, in the context of colonialism when the British more and more rely on um, really Middle Eastern um, Arabs and also um, Middle Eastern interpretations of sort of the key judicial texts of, uh, of, of Islam. So they've become sort of, they, oftentimes their way of doing, uh, practicing Islam, cultural practices are always seen as not properly Islamic. And at the same time, they become poorer also in Old Town. That is, they also start being uh, members of the Taifas, become less able to keep up the um, both mosques, that is the uh, Sheikh Mosque and the Mandri Mosque have caretakers and patrons that are no longer um, uh, are no longer members of Swahili lineages or Taifa um, lineages. So now you have also Arab caretakers, that is people that um, are considered to be Arabs in the colonial um, uh, regime of and colonial hierarchy. And so they start being content, being seen, the, both the Mandri Mosque and the Basheikh Mosque become really the story of ancient Arab architecture on the Swahili coast, right? Which, of course, the Talatha Taifa um, absolutely contest, right? And they also contest saying that these are Arab um, spaces, right? Um, and this really comes to a very distinct head in a very specific moment in the 1920s, because all of a sudden there is really um, a drive um, by an elite member of um, the Arab community of Mombasa, that is Ali bin Salim, who was the Liwali or the Muslim governor of Mombasa, that is uh, the Busaidi government of Mombasa um, um, in the 1920s. Um, he excludes the Taifa members um, from participating for the, uh, in the first election of a quote-unquote Arab seat on Mombasa's legislative council. So he says Taifas, although they're his Muslim brothers and sisters, are not to, allowed to vote because they're natives and not Arabs. This caused a huge rift in Old Town Mombasa. And a protest movement um, was started by a leader of the Talatha Taifa, the Talatha Taifa again being within the Tenashara. His name was Ahmed Motano, and he denounced Arabs um, during Friday prayers in the Basheikh uh, Mosque. Now, formally, or until that moment, the Mandri Mosque and the Basheikh Mosque shared the responsibility of being the Friday mosques uh, uh, for Friday, for uh, the communal, fr for being the place of uh, communal prayers on uh, Fridays, right? Um, but he called out Serb uh, Ali for this um, injustice, for trying to separate uh, Muslims and the Arabs and quote unquote native Swahilis. 
And he called um, on a boycott of um, uh, joining um, in prayer with other Arabs in the Basheikh uh, uh, and Mandri Mosque, right? So that causes a huge rift of also no longer wanting you know, this idea of being a shared Muslim community that has no ethnic boundaries becomes um, broken, quite frankly, from the 1920s until independence, right? And another story that Sheikh, uh, another story that uh, Taifa members tell is that um, certain Arabs during the colonial period wanted a segregated space for themselves in the uh, Mandri and Basheikh mosque. That is, that it should be segregated according to ethnicity, that Arabs should have actually a space in the front and the uh, Taifa, the Swahili, should be in the back, right? And of course, this was absolutely refused by members of the Taifa. And this contestation um, really caused this, uh, and it's a contestation that people still remembered, certainly when I was doing field work, but it really was a memory really of older generations, right? So this is, of course, you can really see how stone architecture, two buildings become contested spaces of who has the authority to be the stewards of Islam and the racialization of architecture, right? Interestingly, while some people like um, uh, Arabs of the, um, um, uh, of the Waqf Commission, that is uh, the Endowment Commission, um, and the British colonialists always said the Mandri and Abba Sheikh Mosque are clearly Arab structures, but the Talifa, Talatha Taifa, of course, talk about the re, talk about a fascinating example of the reinterpretation of architectural style, said no, both the Basheikh and Mandri uh, Mosque are clear evidence of Shirazi or ancient Persian architectural styles being built on the Swahili coast. Now, of course, this is an interesting strategy among uh, by members of the Taifas because by claiming that this is an ancient Shirazi uh, building a tradition, or at least connects to an ancient Shirazi or Persian building connection, you still claim being part of the global urban umma of um, oceanic Islam, but you disengage it from a, an Arab narrative, right? Because at this point, of course, Arab wasn't, was, was also racialized, right? In, in the colonial period. So here you see right, just the way that you then interpret even something uh, as seemingly apolitical as architectural form becomes completely political, right? And again, here you see this obsession for political reasons and also for social reasons and for, for rights, for having rights as a citizen reasons um, of something as seemingly ahistoric, uh, uh, as apolitical as style, how a building is built, right? How a building looks, right? But there's, there's I mean, and, and this obsession of being, um, um, being able to find its true origin somewhere, right? This is a very, very um, Swahili coast uh, phenomenon. And um, uh, both of these mosques really sort of highlight the contested nature of that. And Absolutely. in some ways, when when I was so when I was interviewing Museum Montano, you know, it took him a long time to really tell me these stories because today in post-colonial Mombasa, elders and old families of the of the uh, of Mombasa, you know, 
are of course um, in some ways ashamed of this history of segregation between so-called Arabs and Swahilis, but of course in reality, you know, quote unquote Arabs and Swahilis had been intermarrying for generations, right? This this racialization of their identity um, happened actually in some ways during the colonial period, although they in many ways participated in the racialization. But he, you know, he said that it's something that, you know, people of course now don't really want to admit. And certainly it is not there today. People pray together in the Friday mosques now. Absolutely. And so I think you've drawn a really interesting picture of kind of the complex negotiations that are happening in the mid to late 19th century and even through the 20th century of kind of different ethnic labels that become highly politicized and Mm -hmm. weirdly attached to objects as though an object can ever be kind of rooted only specifically in one culture forever. Mm -hmm. Um, And kind of points to broader questions in Indian Ocean history about how we begin to conceptualize space outside of standard area studies boundaries. Um, And so I think coming on the tail end of this book in which you are grappling with a lot of bigger issues about kind of the Swahili coast and East Africa's place in the world, you also had a really fantastic exhibition come out that you co-curated with Dr. Alison Purpura entitled World on the Horizon, Swahili Arts Across the Indian Ocean, um, which started at the Cranert Art Museum in 2017 and traveled to the Smithsonian National Museum of African Art and the Fowler Museum at UCLA in 2018. This exhibition was the recipient of two national endowments of the humanities grants brought together, and it brought together over 150 objects from public and private collections in Kenya, Oman, the Netherlands, Germany, and the United States, many of which have never been exhibited or written about before. Um, And so I want, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about this exhibition and the accompanying edited volume that you worked on with Alison Purpura. And kind of the interconnections that you see there and kind of this progressing narrative that you're telling of different histories and economies of the Swahili coast. Oh, yes, I'd love uh, I'd love to tell you a little bit more about that, because in some ways, World on the Horizon, I mean, was an incredibly satisfying project um, coming, especially after the book, because, of course, writing a book in some ways is a very lonely (laughs) endeavor. Um, but uh, an exhibition is truly collaborative. Um, and not only was I working closely in some ways, uh, uh, Alison Purpura was the sort of the, the founder of that exhibition because it was her idea that we could pull something off. Uh, we could pull something like that off at the small museum uh, known as the kind of art museum. Um, but of course we worked with so many important, uh, people, uh, and scholars, uh, in Kenya, in Tanzania, also, especially in Zanzibar, um, and also gave us an opportunity to, um, travel to Oman, which has, of course, you know, one of the great, uh, things is that, you know, Swahili heritage, um, connects, uh, to Oman as well. And some of the greatest art, sort of like, ancient heritage objects of Swahili heritage are in in Oman, but of course also in colonial collections in in Europe and North America. So the exhibition allowed us to bring all some of those objects for the first time together. 
And, you know, in some ways, uh, the exhibition to me, I mean, of course, Alison has uh, her own interventions and her own sort of strategies of why she did the exhibition. Um, for me, the, Swahili, the world on the horizon was an opportunity in some ways, of course, to make what I wrote, my the issues I was interested in, in the book, Swahili Port Cities, um, sort of sort of interesting and relevant to a larger public, but also um, it allowed me to grapple with um, uh, on a more sort of really concrete, in a more uh, concrete basis with the issues that I ended the book with, the conclusion, which was called Trading Places, um, where um, I really move away, where I really sort of call out um, East Africa, where I really call out Africanist art historians or challenge Africanist art historians that we should move beyond um, sort of studying ethnic culture or categorizing the arts of Africa or any parts of the world according uh, to ethnicity, right? Even if we say, uh, which Africanists certainly do, that ethnicity is performative and invented and um, is, is a, a is a cultural symbol. Nonetheless, for better or for worse, a lot of Africanist historians, um, you know, of course, even some of my greatest um, mentors who have also influenced me in many important ways, you know, oftentimes um, focus on sort of like the history and of the arts of the Swahili people, of the Yoruba people, of the, um, you know, Abamana people, right? So this ethnicization of African art history is really what um, has troubled me really since the beginning and world on the horizon let me sort of explore questioning that that straitjacket really in a concrete uh, way but also in a way that would be relevant to a larger audience not just scholars or students or um, university professors right and world on the horizon really was about that you know i mean really what is it uh, you know of course we we still had the tide we still had to have the marker swahili arts across the Indian Ocean, right? But we had this, you know, um, we had this uh, the, in, uh, this call or the statement right in the beginning of the introduction of the accompanying volume, the edited volume that accompanied the book, we right away said that this project is about undisciplining art history, specifically undisciplining Africanist art history. What does it mean to not think of the arts of Africa or other parts of the world that are usually studied uh, in the area studies paradigm. Um, what if we un? What if we got rid of those boundaries? Right. What does it mean to study objects and artworks and histories from an oceanic perspective, or not from the perspective of um, the paradigm of um, Africa, the paradigm of South Asia? The paradigm of the Middle East, right? And of course, then you become aware that um, you know this I, this obsession with uh, belonging and origins doesn't make sense at all with when you uh, when you look at how um, Swahili arts are made, the histories that they um, embody, that an individual object holds, right? Um, and of course, that these objects were conceptually always on the move, but also physically on the move. But the individual components, its visual style is, of course, almost like an imbrication, an entanglement of multiple worlds on the surface of individual objects, right? The funny thing is, um, 
that even though we said it over and over in the introduction and all of the contributors who wrote incredible um, um, chapters in the um, accompanying um, uh, volume, it was interesting to see even when the when the when the book was reviewed and the exhibition was reviewed um, in large for wider audiences. For example, the New York Times did a review of World on the Horizon. In general, the reviewer was incredibly um, positive and praised the exhibition um, exactly for what we said. You know that it was moving beyond an ethnic studies paradigm. Um, but in the end, he says, which I thought was so telling that we're in some ways, you know, we're still trained to see the world this way. He was like, I'm still troubled, though, because, you know, what is it about a carved Swahili door, right, which has sort of like stylistic features that look similar to place to um, style uh, to carving traditions in the Middle East and Asia or mainland Africa? Like, what makes it then original? How can you say it's, what makes it Swahili, right? That was at the end his question. He was troubled by what could be seen as an unoriginality, right? And of course, for me, this was like, wow, this is exactly, of course, the unspoken um, narratives that we have still naturalized, right? And it's still very much the bedrock of art history as a discipline, let alone Africanist art history, right? There's still this um, unspoken narrative that we hold on to that somehow originality, true culture, somehow has to be anchored in place permanently. That there has to be something that allow, allows me to say, this is anchored in the earth of Kenya, right? Of course, this is the narration uh, of autochtony, right? Nativism, right? But this idea that originality can only be proven if it is anchored in this particular place is alive and with us today. And certainly in the field of art history, the larger field of, Af uh, of art history, not just Africanist art history, you know, um, I know that sometimes my work uh, gets looked at as a little bit suspiciously, you know, this like in between border space, like what is what is really African about this? Is she really an Africanist, right? Um, certainly, I, you know, I know for sure that this still troubles the, you know, sort of these very entrenched um, truisms that are really foundational to art history. I mean, it's not just, they're not just foundational to art history, they're foundational to many um, disciplines in the humanities. So it's interesting, even when we stated overtly, World on the Horizon is about moving beyond obsessions with origins, in the end, people are still troubled what makes this really local, quite frankly. Th thank you for problematizing uh, these facile and simplistic notions of indigeneity that are problematic in many contexts and politicized uh, to different ends. And this is really useful, not just for people who are interested in the Indian Ocean world, but also in the Atlantic and elsewhere as well, where you have different worlds coming yes. together and forging new connections. Um, well, Preeta, we've taken a lot of your time and I'm sure the listeners would like to know more about what you're working on next. And what, what, what do you hope to work on um, after these projects? Uh, I'm actually, I've been working for a very long time already on um, uh, completing a manuscript actually on Swahili coast photography, which have, has been one of my long abiding obsessions um, actually since writing the dissertation. 
the title, um, the provisional title of the book is um, Sea of Things, A History of Photography from the Swahili Coast. And in there, in some ways, you could you both will see continuities um, with my uh, previous book on architecture, because in that book, I frame photography not so much like a static image or something, you know, or I don't only look into the photograph, but really I'm interested how photographs are material artifacts that are constituted by mobility, right? So in some ways it's very similar to my interests on, um, on, East, uh, on East African architecture, right? And it's really, the book really explores, um, similarly to my previous book, the everyday uses of photography. And in that book, I'm particularly interested in histories of enslavement and subjugation and who is actually shown in these photographs, which are often people who experience subjugation um, and slavery, especially some of the women in the photographs. That's, that's the project I'm working on right now. Yeah. That sounds amazing. I remember um, looking at some of those during your um, presentation at NYU uh, conference. Ah, <laughs> yes. It was. Ah, uh, oh, yes, yeah. now I see. I get it all. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, now it feels like ages ago. Well, I, yeah. I really enjoyed this. Thank you so much uh, for joining us today. Um, and thank you for thank listening. You. So, yes, thank you so much for giving me an opportunity to revisit my work with you. Thank you. And thank you for listening to today's episode in which we explored Swahili port cities, the architecture of elsewhere, published by Indiana University Press. This is your host, Ahmed Al-Mazmi. And I'm Jenny Peruski. Stay tuned for the next episode of New Books in the Indian Ocean World.